want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 12, so you have a copy of God's Word. Uh, Jalen uh, was able to read that for us this morning, uh, Mark chapter 12. Uh, on our journey through this book, we're still on Tuesday of Holy Week, of the last week of Jesus' life uh, on earth for his mission of why he came. And over this one singular day, Jesus has answered just about, it seems like, every serious question that the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees could bring to him. He has answered, as we looked at last week, the answer to what is the greatest command. And he answered that for us last week, love God and love others. He's addressed his authority, his own authority. Uh, he has addressed, uh, are we to pay taxes or not? Should we, should we uh, give to Caesar or not? Should we rebel against uh, evil Roman empire? He has answered that question to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. He also answered uh, the question about the reality of the resurrection. He came with, a, really they came with an absurd question, given this crazy scenario of, of a woman who had had husbands die uh, and die and die and childless and childless and childless. And then finally, when that person dies too and gets to heaven, who will she be married to was the question. The question wasn't really about marriage. It was trying to give this ridiculous scenario to, to Jesus to answer the question. And his question was answering about the resurrection and that they did not know the power of God nor the scriptures. For one, just real quick, may that not be true of us. May we know the power of God. May we believe in his power and may we rely on his power. And may we be a people who are dedicated to knowing his word. Uh, these people, they didn't, believe, they didn't really know the power of God. And they didn't know the scriptures and so they were wrong. And so Jesus clarifies that for us. And now we come to the last statement of verse 34. It says, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. They're done. They have been silenced upon question upon question. And it's as if Jesus is kind of dropping the mic and saying, I'm finished. I've answered all your questions. And now it turns to himself. And he's going to ask his own question. Uh, I like what Ralph Martin said. He said, after a day of questions comes the question of the day. And I believe this is, a, a, like, in, even as Jalen was probably reading it, you might be like, what did he just read? I'm not even sure what happened in verse 35 through 37. It's a confusing quote, potentially. Kind of maybe seems a little heady, and you're like, all right, this is, this, as a matter of fact, is the last public teaching by Jesus. We're going to get the Olivet Discourse in chapter 13, which is also going to be heavy for us to study. And I got a lot of work ahead for me uh, as well in preparing those messages because it's a difficult uh, study and it's a difficult passage. But that's a teaching with just the disciples. This is his last public teaching. He's answered their questions and now he's about to teach one more time and say a few more things. And in what he is about to say is really, really remarkable because this has been the entire book. The entire book has been trying to answer this question, who is Jesus? Who, in fact, is this one who has come that we saw in chapter 1? Who came and declared, repent, and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Who is this one who comes meek and mild? Who is this one who comes born of a virgin? 
Who is this that has, as we've watched, healed disease, who has overcome death by casting, and he cast out demons. We see this as he has raised people from the dead, as he's taken people who have blinded eyes and given them sight, who've had deaf ears to hear. Who is this Jesus? Who is he? And he's going to, in his own way, make a public statement about himself. And he does it here. And first, as we kind of have this outline for us this morning, first I want us to look at the mystery of the Messiah. Who is the Messiah? Look at verse 35. We'll read this section again. Verse 35 to 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, here's the last question and really the question of the day. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit, because he's saying the question is, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? How can the Christ be the son of the David when, here's the point, verse 36, when David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord, that is Adonai or Yahweh, or Yahweh is the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And here's what he says in verse 37. David himself calls him Lord. So here's his question. So how is he his son? Do you see the, the question there? It might still be a little bit confusing. For one, I want you to understand, he is quoting from Psalm 110. It is, in fact, surprisingly, you might not have ever noticed this before, but it is the most frequently quoted Old Testament ta- text in the New Testament. Kind of remarkable because you're like, I don't even know what he means by this sometimes when we read this. But so here's, here, let me help explain this. I'm going to be a little technical just for a few minutes and then we'll try to, to move uh, on through this. But try to bear with me for a second. The view of the day was that the Messiah would be a son of David. That was not something that was uh, unheard of. That was very, it was commonplace, in fact, to believe that the Messiah, the promised one, the one of the Old Testament talks about, would be a son of David the king. Okay, so that's not really debated. It would have been very commonplace in the time of Christ. And really, early Christianity affirmed this. Uh, that the Messiah would either would come from the house, which is Luke 1.69, or the throne, which is Luke 1.32, or the seed. We see that in Romans 1.3. I'm going to read that in a second. In 2 Timothy 2.8, it would come of David. So it was pretty commonplace even in the early church and at the beginning, and then even in the Old Testament, that the Messiah would be the son of David. 2 Samuel chapter two, 7 says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, talking of David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's talking about Solomon, but it's talking about a forever kingdom that was gonna come through his own body, through his own family lineage, through his own blood. Isaiah chapter nine, verse seven, we looked at that one verse for a month in December and we looked at the prophecy And the Messiah will reign on David's throne forever. Jeremiah, another prophecy, Jeremiah 25, 5 says, I will raise up to David's throne a branch. Again, a family tree would come through David. So the Messiah would most certainly be a descendant of David. That was not really debated. 
And notice, though, what David says, even if if you're looking at Psalm 110, but notice what Jesus affirms here. Look, you might can miss it if you're not careful. Look at verse 36. David himself, notice what he says, in the Holy Spirit declared. What Jesus is affirming is what a, a central doctrine of the faith for every follower of Jesus. It is in the inspiration of Scripture. And what we mean by the inspiration of Scripture is that, is a, that the Bible is a dual authorship. That there are many actual human authors who wrote. Moses writing some of the Old Testament. David, Solomon, uh, the various minor prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah. As we move to the New Testament. Mark, the book that we're studying. As Mark writes this gospel as Matthew is writing his gospel, as Paul writes all these letters to the church and these doctrinal theses, you could say, in Romans, as these books are being written, they're written by a human author, but inspired by the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus is saying is that when David wrote these words, when he declared these words, he was doing that, notice, in the Holy Spirit. This is what Peter is declaring. That these aren't just ancient tales in, in, in Second Peter. These aren't just ancient tales written. These are th- that men wrote as the Spirit guided them. And this is Jesus affirming Scripture for one, but also the inspiration of Scripture. And so here's the kind of, when we get to the statements here, I want to clarify this. You know, when the... the The first Lord, when you look at this statement, okay, so now he's quoting Psalm 110 in verse 36. The Lord said to my Lord. So the first Lord refers to God. And the second was was reference to the king. And so the Lord said to my Lord. So saying to the king. And so up until about 586, this would have been used uh, until the the end of the destruction of kind of the the lineage of David as as the throne and the kingdom began split and all of the effects of the people's waywardness from God, the throne kind of ended as we see it in 586 B.C. The Davidic monarchy ended. And so the psalm then was viewed as a messianic psalm. That this was a messianic psalm that David was saying, the Lord said to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And so at the time of Christ, this psalm would have been taken at the first Lord, um, uh, the first Lord referring to God and the second to the Messiah. So Jesus is saying, how can the Messiah, though, and here's the actual question. I know that might have been still kind of hard to follow. So here's the question. So Jesus is saying, how can the Messiah be both David's son and his Lord if he is just a human descendant? For instance, I don't talk to my kids and say, my Lord Colson, would you go get me some cereal? <laughs> like, like I, don't t- I would never call my son Lord unless we were playing something. And even then, I think I'd have a hard time saying it. Right, like you don't talk to your children that way or your grandchildren, my Lord. Yes, what would you like me to do for you today? Like, no, like what are you going to do for me today, right? Like that's how we're going to interact probably. And so the, the, the question of the day that Jesus is asking is, if this is the view of the day that Jesus or that the Messiah is the one that David is talking to, that the Lord God said to my Lord, the Messiah, that one day, here's the promise, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. You see how the Messiah, for their their view, works, right? 
One day the Messiah is going to come and every enemy is going to be under his feet. He will rule and reign forever and ever. This is the promise of the Old Testament. And they cling to this promise. And Jesus is saying, well, if, if, the, if the Messiah is a descendant of David's son, how can David say that he is his Lord? He's the king. How can a descendant of his be Lord? You see, the answer is that the Messiah is not simply David's son. He is also God's son. He is deity. He is God. In the book of Acts at Pentecost, Peter, because remember I said this is the most quoted uh, psalm and and section of scripture in the New Testament. The the New Testament writers loved quoting Psalm 110. As confusing as that may be for us, they loved it. Uh, And so here's what Peter said in his very, the very first sermon Peter gives Peter at Pentecost, the spirit has uh, enveloped him, he's overwhelmed him, and now he's speaking. I mean, a man who was talking about fear, who was fearful for his own life, denied Christ three times. Now the spirit of God, (coughs) excuse me, is indwelling him, and he stands in front, boldly proclaiming the gospel, that Jesus is the Christ. And here's what he says at Pentecost. Peter in his sermon quoted from Psalm 110, he said, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and here's the quote, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Here's what Peter says. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, the Messiah, both Lord and Christ, the Christ, the anointed one. This Jesus whom you crucified. Peter is saying, that's who David was talking about. The Lord said to my Lord, the Messiah, I'm going to put everything. And he's saying, this is the Christ. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. You see, in Jesus asking this question, he is declaring that he is the Messiah. They're wondering, who is Jesus? Jesus is telling them through his own question. As they've stopped asking their questions, as he puts the mic and drops the mic, he's proclaiming that he himself is, in fact, the anointed one. He is, that's how David can also claim that his future son is going to be Lord. The Messiah was not just going to be a son of David, he was going to be the son of God. Paul in Romans chapter 1. Wonderful. I mean, one day I want to study it. I don't know if I'm ready to tackle it quite yet. But in Romans chapter 1, 3 through 4, listen to how as Paul is opening up his letter, what he says about Jesus. He says, concerning his son, Jesus, who was descended from David. Here he is. He's a, a descendant of David. He's the son of David. He is to rule and reign as the son of David according to the flesh. Meaning through bloodlines, he is the son of David. But verse 4. And was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, Jesus was claiming to be the descendant of David. And would in just a few short days on Sunday morning declare himself to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. You see, the mystery of the Messiah, it, it, it may have been a mystery, and sadly, for many devout Jews, even to this day, is still a mystery. They're waiting for the son of David to come. They have missed that Jesus has already come and fulfilled the prophecies of old. 
And so Jesus, in his last question, and his question of the day, he's declaring that he is, in fact, the Messiah. And notice what the crowd says. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And notice what they say. And the great throng, you might have been going like, I'm so confused. But the great throng understood it, and they said, they heard him gladly. They're marveling again, but marveling is different than faith. They're marveling at him. They're amazed at his teaching. They're, they're amazed that his, again, he's just dropped the mic again. And they're like, man, that Jesus, he's good at this, you know. And they're just marveling at him. And so here, notice in the last, I think this is important to note, in the last public teaching of Jesus on earth, we get this story. And what we're going to see is two contrasting individuals. One's the scribes and one's a poor widow. Secondly, so not only we're we talking about the mystery of the Messiah, but secondly this morning, the scribes' superficiality. They're, they're counterfeit. They're fake. They're phony. The scribes' superficiality. Look at verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses. And for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. You see, in the day, the scribes had significant authority in first century Palestine. They had significant authority. They were actually, like, people didn't, you know, like, I think sometimes we can get, like, uh, like look down. Or, like, we almost look down on someone. They're like, you see they're pious. You see they're, very, they're proud. And you kind of look down on it. But actually in the day, you would think that would have been the case. That they would have looked down on these pious scribes. But actually they looked up to them. People of the day, they looked up to them. And, and they would have been like, man, what? look at them. Like, what? marveling at their devotion, marveling at their, their love for God. They were actually, people would actually marvel at them. And, but reality is they were counterfeit. And notice, notice how, how this outlines for us. One, counterfeit religion. And here, notice this about counterfeit religion. Counterfeit religion seeks to be seen. Jesus is saying, beware of this counterfeit religion. It's a, it's a religion that seeks to be seen. Notice that their dress stood out big time. Most of the common folk would have worn colorful attire of various colors, you know, of the day. But they would have stood out with this prayer shawl type huge robe. And they would walk around and had on its corners of it these, uh, these tassels on it. And it was this ornate, beautiful dress. And it stood out. So if they were walking in a crowd, they would stand out immensely. Why? Not because that's what they were supposed to wear. It's like the scribe's supposed to wear white and the scribe's supposed to wear this. No, it was attention-grabbing. It was standing out. And the scribes had these, these full-length robes so they could be recognized. And they show up, notice this, they show up in a crowd not to give and serve and love others as we've seen, as Jesus said, that should be marks of a follower of him. It's a love for God and a love for people. Notice what they're, they're there for. They like the greetings in the marketplaces. They like to be seen. They like to mingle around, not to get to know people, but to be known. They want to be known. They want to be noticed. Reality is counterfeit religion seeks this. It seeks to be seen. It seeks to make much of yourself. Not only does counterfeit religion seek to be seen, it also counterfeit religion seeks the approval of man and not God. It wants man's approval. 
It's more concerned about man's approval than God's approval. I wish I could tell you I am perfect in this area, but sadly I'm not. It's easy, right, to be focused on what people think about you. You know, well, was that a good sermon or not? Was that a confusing point, first point? It probably was. And this morning I'll probably be thinking about it all day. Like, man, I should have said that a little bit better. Or maybe I could have said it a different way. Because I'm not really like, man, I want to be faithful to the text and I want God's word to be true and I want to uplift him. No, I want, I want to make sure Eric's known as, like, he was able to really communicate a good point. And I can easily focus on like, man, would this person like this or will that person like this? Or when I make this kind of decision about a certain thing, will this crowd like it or will this crowd like it? And we can get so focused on what people think and never worried once about what God thinks. You see, the long prayers are a foolish attempt to gain the respect of others. It says there that they who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They're, they're praying, they're, they're out there, and they're in public praying, and they're praying these long prayers, and they're saying all these big theological words, you know, and they're saying all these great things. And why are they saying those things? They're wanting to be noticed by people. They want to be liked, and they're worried about what people think. And I love what Jason Myers, and he's cold-blooded when he said this. He, says, he said it succinctly. The length of their prayers did not demonstrate the depth of their devotion to God, but the lengths they will go in order to be noticed as religious. I think that's so true. Have you ever noticed that? Maybe in your own heart when you're in a group prayer, maybe on a Wednesday night or a Thursday night in community group, and all of a sudden everyone's praying, and you're like, all right, I gotta, I gotta impress this a little bit. I gotta say the right words, and 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 quickly we can focus on people around us. And can I flatter them with my my skill of prayer, <laughs> like like it's a skill? And can I flatter other people? And we're so worried about what other people think. But see, this is counterfeit. This is hypocrisy. This is fake religion. This is exactly what Jesus was saying. Beware of these types of people like the scribes. I mean, think about this. He is on their, what we would consider home court. Like he is in the temple with the scribes. And here, this is, this is Passover week. I mean, we're talking about thousands upon thousands of people from all over are gathering together and they're coming. And here's Jesus to the crowd saying, beware about people like the scribes who like to, I mean, here's a scribe walking by and Jesus out loud is saying, beware of them who like to wear long robes. And can you imagine you're wearing long robes and you're like, oh, he's talking about me. You know, can I pull this thing up? Can I take it off real fast or whatever? Because you're probably worried about what people think. Or maybe you're like, man, ridiculous. You see, it's counterfeit. And when this is something that here he's saying, notice the word that Jesus himself uses in verse 38, beware. And I wouldn't just say beware of people, beware of your own heart. Beware of yourself. Is your heart, is my heart, are we people who tend to worry about what other people think? You see, that's counterfeit religion that seeks the approval of man and not God. And finally, and lastly, is, of, of this section of the scribe's superficiality is this counterfeit religion takes advantage of others. It's abusive reality is we've seen this in the past decade. We've seen it over the history of even the church, sadly. How 
religious people, whether it's the Catholic Church or as we've seen over the past few years in the Southern Baptist uh, churches about, not, obviously not every Southern Baptist church, but it became a problem and came very prominent in the news uh, about the abuses of power and how they were taking their status and their, and their power and their ability to, to, to stand in front and be a leader, and a spir- supposed to be a spiritual mentor, but have taken their power and abused it in an abusive manner. You see, that's counterfeit. That's not loving neighbor and loving God. That is completely loving self. And a love for self leads you to take advantage of others. Notice what it says about them. I mean, think about this. Think how wretched this is. Who, verse 40, who devour widows' houses. I mean, who devour widows' houses? who take advantage of the, the most vulnerable of society was if the day would have been a widow and an orphan, who take advantage of them, using them, abusing them. I, we don't even know the details of what that looked like, but taking advantage of them. And here he's saying, instead of a love for God and a neighbor, I mean, this was so foreign to these religious leaders. And Jesus is saying, beware of them and of your own heart. Notice this, just a side note. Jesus in his last public teaching, his last words to the crowds was this, they will receive the greater condemnation. I think we have a tendency to think that every sin is like on the same playing field. In a sense of, yes, from scripture, every sin is, is like whether you have, you have just broken, as, as even God's word says, if you've just taken, as James says, if you've just even broken one point of the law, it's as if you've broken them all. You can just had a little innocent white lie, and that potentially is the only lie that you've ever made or the ever sin that you ever heard. That, is, that one sin is deserving of eternal punishment. But notice, though, in Scripture, and I'm not going to point all these out. I'll probably do that at a later time. Notice here he says they will receive the greater condemnation. If you remember, even in Jesus talking about Tyre and Sidon, and he's talking, we've looked at that already. He's like, it'll be far worse for you than it was even for Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, people who who have had access to the gospel, those who have had a free uh, gift given to the extended to them, and they have turned they're back on it. Here, and when you put, as, as in like the Bible even says, James says it as well, don't, don't just so easily desire to be a teacher because you'll be held to a higher standard. What does that mean? Here in Jesus' last words, referring to them, he's saying beware of not only the scribes, but again, our own hearts and our tendency to take advantage of others, seek the approval of men. And to be noticed and be recognized and seek that honor and fame for ourselves. Jesus saying, see through this. See through the scribes' phoniness, their fakeness. And then now, lastly, especially after saying how the scribes have taken advantage of the widows and devour them as the word used. We get to get to peer into a story about a widow. Look at verse 41 and notice the varying differences, the complete end of the spectrum, the widow's generosity. Look at the widow's generosity in verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. 
Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Again, Mark, reminder, he's writing to a Roman audience, so they wouldn't know what these copper coins were. Um, You know, the denarius that we looked at a few weeks ago, that was a Roman coin. Remember, it had Caesar, uh, his inscription on it. And here, Mark, writing to a predominantly Roman audience, Uh, followers of Jesus, Roman audience, he explains it a little bit further, saying basically, hey, she put in these two copper coins, which make a penny, so they could understand what that meant. And basically that was 162 of those pennies. Two of those coins, these two copper coins, were about 164th of a denarius. So remember, a denarius was a day's wage worth of money. And so here is just this very seemingly small amount. And remember, imagine the picture. Here's, again, bustling crowds. There's people coming from, from, uh, from all over. They're coming to Jerusalem. They're descending to the temple. And here they are offering their offerings. And so they're coming and they're dropping in. Maybe some had saved the whole year for this moment to give at the temple, at the, at the, the holy place, you know, as in, in, in Jerusalem. And they're going to offer their gifts. And so they come and they enter. And, and Jesus is, is watching and he's observing with his disciples there. And they just sit near the money box. And observe and watch maybe after. And the way it was done is they were like these, these brass, like trumpet-like things. So, I mean, can you imagine like if I threw coins into a trumpet, how loud that would be? You know, like we had some of those in the back. And you're like, as you're walking in, clang, 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 clang. You know, as it's clanging in, as you're dropping in, uh, all of us as we drop in coins these days. Who has coins on them? I never do. I don't know. But, but in fact, they, yeah, of course, they do. And so they're dropping in these coins and, and they're all this... This, this sacrifice of, of an offering to God. And here they are. And I, I can only imagine the disciples going, man, like just as they're watching and hearing the, the sounds and watching as a scribe walks by. He's wearing his ornate robe and he drops in his coins and he's probably looking around wondering, is anyone watching when he makes sure a crowd's around before he drops it in so they can be seen by others. And they're observing. And then here's this poor widow walking over All she has is two copper coins. And she takes those two coins and throws them in. And Jesus and the disciples see this. It says in verse 42, as as we see this, and you get the the explanation that it just makes up a penny. This seems insignificant. Verse 43, and he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. And on face value, you're like, I mean, no, she's not. I mean, it's just two copper coins. Like, someone else could have dropped in five denarius in there. Someone could have dropped in, you know, a year's worth of wage. Someone who had a lot of wealth walks by. It's telling us that these, these wealthy people are coming. And it says, people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in a large sum. And here's a person who puts a very small sum in. But Jesus says, in fact, he says something different. He says, as he's pulling his disciples to him, he says, this poor widow has put in more. How can that be more? Because tangibly, it's not more. It's less. It's significantly less. But in Jesus' eyes, how is it more? I think a few things that we need to note about this and and this widow's generosity that teach us about giving but also teach us about God. One is this, is Jesus pays attention. 
Jesus pays attention. God pays attention. He sees and he observes and he knows who this widow is. He knows that she's a widow. He, doesn't, he knows that about her and he knows how much she put in. But in fact, what we find out about it is what Jesus says. He says, he is, she has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Verse 44, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. How does Jesus know that? If he's only the son of David, he wouldn't know that because he would be human. But Because he's God, he knows who she is. She knows how much money she has. She knows how little she has. She knows that he's a, she is a widow. She knows everything about this woman. You see, Jesus pays attention. And notice this. Jesus knows the heart. Jesus knows our hearts. He pays attention to the heart. He knew that the rich, as they were giving, they were contributing a lot. And maybe some, there were sacrifices of an offering. And others, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it seemed like a large amount, but in reality, to their own wealth, it was very little. Because Jesus knows the heart. And thirdly, I want you to hear this point. I think this is important. This is something that God is continuing to teach me and work in my heart. Is this, and so you can write this down. Number three is, I've kind of been extra outlines within the outline here, but is this sacrificial giving releases us from the power of money over us. Sacrificial giving releases us from the power that money has over us. You see, money can easily get a hold of your heart, right? And it controls us. We're like, man, I, I I want more, or I want more of it, or if I have more, I could then attain more, or I could have more freedom, or I would, if I had more, then I would maybe give more. But notice the sacrificial giving releases us from the power that money has over us. You see, our tendency is to give leftovers. It just is. Our tendency is to look and see, well, if I am going to give to the church or if I'm going to give to a, a need or something that I notice, do I have something left over to give? Once we've met all our needs, if there happens to be some money left over to give, eh, we may give it a shot. But William Kelly, I think, said it really well. He said, the test of liberality is not what is given, but what is left the test of liberality is not what is actually given, but what is left over. You see, what he's saying, what Jesus is saying about these rich people, maybe as they come in and as they put their coins in, what does he say about them? He says, for they all contributed out of their abundance. They're contributing out of their abundance. I have a lot of wealth. I have a lot of margin. There, there's, like, this isn't going to be a scratch on my back. That's what they say, you know, when an owner of the NFL franchise gets, um, when they get fined. Right, the, the Panthers, I don't even know why I want to talk about the Panthers, it's terrible. Uh, I remember starting the season saying something about the Panthers, and I don't think I said another word the rest of the season. It was not worth it. Um, but I remember at one point, our, our, the owner of the Panthers did something really, really not wise of, of a man of his stature and uh, ability, and he got angry and threw a cup at someone, and, uh, some ice at an, uh, fans on the other team. He got upset. <laughs> like, how childish, right? And he got fined like $300,000. You're like, if you find me $300,000, I am now a slave to you, <laughs> right? Like, like, like I, I don't, you know, I'm not, I can't just give you $300,000. But for someone who has multi-billion dollars, $300,000 is, is, is almost insignificant. It doesn't really touch him, 
Like, that's nothing. That's what, and that's what people were saying, you know, as they're talking about, like, what's well, a slap on the, it's not even a slap on the wrist. It's like a slap on your pinky fingernail or something, right? Like, it's, it's a nothing to him. So, and here's the point. It's like, we can give, and there is, and God has blessed people to be a blessing. And some people have wealth. And when they give, it is very beneficial to the kingdom of God, that God's kingdom is advanced, that missionaries are be able to be supported, and, and lives change, the God, and, and the word of God translated and put into other languages, and the ministry of the church to go forward. That God, has, God has blessed people to be a blessing. But Jesus, Jesus is saying, listen, it is more beneficial, and this woman has given more than the rich have given because she has not given out of the abundance of what she has, but rather, rather in her poverty, she has put everything she has in. All that she had to live on, she gave. You see, that's the point, sacrificial giving. It should be a sacrifice. It should be a little painful. Now, I know that can be really hard if you've never given before. You've always maybe, you know, just built your budget or maybe you don't even really kind of work off a budget. And so when you think of, say, a 10%, you're like, whoa, that's a big number. And you're like, that's significant money that I normally have used for our various needs and different things. And so, like, thinking about a, a tithe or a 10% is like, whoa, that's, that's really difficult. I understand that might be extremely difficult. And for some of us, maybe we're already contributing, but like we're just giving out of the excess. We're not really even thinking about actually giving. Or whatever you are giving, to think like, what can I do in our community? Maybe there's another way that I can give, not just of my resources, but actually of my time and my abilities. You see, again, sacrificial giving releases us from the power that money has over us. Ron Blue um, who's a financial advisor but a Christian, um, really, I think, can help us with kind of God's purpose for money. And he gives three kind of main points, and I want to I just briefly give them to you from Ron Blue. He said this, he says, first of all, God has the right to whatever he wants whenever he wants it. First, God has the right to whatever he wants whenever he wants it. If we really, this is, comes from our belief that if God really owns everything, if everything is his and we're just stewards, then God has the right to whatever he wants, whenever he wants it. Second, he mentions this, is uh, the implication of God owning it all. He says is that not only is my giving decision a spiritual decision, but every spending decision is a spiritual decision. Not just my spiritual decision to contribute or to give, but also how I use the resources I've been given, how I budget, how I plan, how I spend my own money. All those things are spiritual decisions. He says, someday I will give an account of how I used his property. And the third implication he mentions is uh, of the truth that God owns it all is that you can't fake stewardship. He says, a person who has been a Christian for even a short while can fake prayer, Bible study, evangelism, going to church, and so on, but he can't fake what his checkbook reveals. You see, money, God talked a lot about money, in fact. And we don't really like the fact that he talked about money because that's painful, the whole point. But what we see about this woman is, and what we see about money is money tends to be a savior. 
It becomes a rescuer. If I have enough, then I'll be secure. I'll be safe. It becomes something that we trust in is money and things. And so here's this woman saying, I only have two coins, but I am putting it in. What is she doing? She's showing an act of faith. She's putting her trust that God will provide. God will take care. There's one more thing I want to, as I want to close this morning is this. This woman, it says, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. That reminds me about what Jesus is about to do in three days. You see, this is Tuesday of Holy Week. On Friday, he was going to give literally of himself all that he had. He was going to be obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. You see, Jesus came and he literally gave of himself. You want a picture of generosity. You want a picture of sacrificial giving. We look to the cross. We look to the Savior who goes to the cross willingly, who dies the death that we deserved and pays the price for our sins. He gives fully and completely of himself so that we could live abundantly, so that we could then now be a blessing Because we have been blessed. The reality is this, is Jesus paid it all, all to him, I owe. I love what Martin Luther says. So you might be going like, I don't have much, Eric. I I don't have very much. I love what Martin Luther said. He says, grace is like water. It runs to the lowest point. You see, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God wants to pour himself and show himself strong and mighty and faithful to you. But oftentimes we hold on and we miss out on that gift of grace because we try to do it ourselves. We try to live our life ourselves. We try to do it how we want to do it, the way we think we should do it. But here is this truth, is God's grace is what comes after the humble, the meek. His grace, like Martin Luther says, it's like water and it runs to the lowest point. It comes to us to those who have put themselves last. When we follow the command that Jesus has talked about, love God and love others, when we start to put ourselves down the list way last, that's where God meets us with his grace, and he abundantly gives. So in fact, as that old hymn says, Jesus paid it all. He gave of himself liberally, like we're seeing this widow giving out of her poverty, she gives what she has, and she trusts him with it. Jesus is going to give his life so that his life as a ransom so that we could be set free. Set free from the power and bondage of sin and especially money and its hold on our hearts and how it's so easy to be greedy and want more and more and think we need more and think that it will satisfy us when it's just a fake, phony Savior. We need this Savior, the Messiah, the promised one, the one who is not just the son of David, but he's the son of God come to rescue us. Let's go to him now in prayer as we close and think about these words this morning. I'm not sure where, where you are on your journey of, of faith and life, but I hope you're starting to see who Jesus is. That he is in fact the son of God who has slain for us. He's the one who is the from the first and the last. As we opened our service this morning, he's the one who has the keys of death and Hades. He's the one we need to put our trust in. Will you trust him today? Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for 
your gospel. We thank you that you gave of your life so that we could live for you and for your glory. God, forgive us for when we seek our own glory. When we, like the scribes, want to be liked, we want the approval of people. We want to be noticed. We want to be accepted. God, forgive us of these things. God, may our hearts turn from that sin. May we repent of our selfishness and our pride and our greed and our desire for more and our willing and our wanting to hold on to things and not release and live with open hands and an open heart. God, help us. We need your spirit. We cannot do these things. But I thank you this is why you came. You came and accomplished our, par- our pardon. You gave your life. And in turn, we ought to give our life to you. So help us to do that in a, in a practical way daily. May we do that with our resources. God, may we be generous. May we be sacrificial in our giving. God, may we be um, uh, bold in our faith. God, may we, we really put... God, our lives in alignment with you. Help us, God. We need your help. And as we declare through a song, God, we need you. Every hour, every moment, while we sleep, while we're awake, we need your help. We need your grace. And may you pour it out to us and may we receive it and live lives of worship and adoring you, the risen one. Help us, God, in all these ways. In Jesus' name.